Welcome to JFK and the Enduring Secret. I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. As you know, I'm in the middle of producing an exciting set of YouTube video episodes for the JFK Enduring Secret YouTube channel. And I'm doing it with my friend, my JFK sidekick, and co-producer on that project, Rick Russo. We're aptly calling these episodes Mysteries of the Enduring Secret. Rick has a unique place in JFK research history, and among his many notable research qualifications, he had a principal role in the production of Episode 6 of The Men Who Killed Kennedy. He is one of a handful of folks left who has personally interviewed many of the original and key witnesses at Bethesda. His insight into some of the deeper mysteries of the JFK assassination was the genesis for us coming together and deciding to produce Mysteries of the Enduring Secret. The idea was to pick a handful of topics that were not well known or where we could bring light to evidence that is not clearly understood but critically important. And finally, to present startling new evidence and alternative ways of looking at matters within the case that are not in line with populist thinking, but seem to be supported, at least in part, by credible evidence. Thank Rick for the topics, as all of them are from his own memory and experiences, all 12 that we currently plan on producing. They are spectacular topics. And as for Rick, even after all these years, his instant recall and command of these topics is something that I am, well, just envious of. Today's podcast started out as a warm-up and a teaser for the next Mysteries of the Enduring Secret episode. But as luck would have it, now it's a full-blown episode of its own. Thanks to what Rick is going to reveal to you today, a bombshell reveal related to the Mysteries of the Autopsy. The Mysteries at Bethesda. But before we pivot to the episode, let's rewind the tape a bit. Originally, as I said, this podcast episode was supposed to be a teaser that introduced a discussion with one of the most distinguished JFK assassination researchers and authors, William Matson Law. Mr. Law, who is a delightful man, agreed to be interviewed for our YouTube channel and engage in a discussion generally about the mysteries of Bethesda, along with Rick and I. Mr. Law may be most famous for coaxing Jim Jenkins to engage in a deeper conversation about what he experienced that night at the autopsy. Mr. Jenkins has turned out to be one of the most important witnesses ever discovered regarding the events of Bethesda. Rick and William have been friends for many years, both of them among the handful of researchers left who had first-hand engagement with the original witnesses there that night. And so, the upcoming JFK Enduring Secret YouTube episode with William Matson Law and Rick Russo should be on your dance card. It's coming soon to our JFK Enduring Secret YouTube channel. In today's podcast episode, Rick has a startling new revelation about what happened that night at Bethesda. It's not something you have ever heard before, unless you were in a select company at a couple of select and 
small discussions that Rick points out. I won't steal Rick's thunder and say anything more than that. You'll have to be patient for just a few seconds more and then listen to the episode. Originally, this was a simple banter back and forth between Rick and I as we rehashed the facts of that night and the facts about his big reveal. The banter took almost three hours. So in order to make the dialogue short enough to listen into on one episode, I have eliminated most of the questioning by me. And the episode is now more of a straight story tell by Rick that I guarantee will keep you captivated for sure. During this back and forth, I asked a lot of tough questions that actually you will not hear on this podcast. And I asked those questions because the material is fantastic enough that it takes most people for pause. But as Rick says, he points to evidence, corroborated evidence in most cases, evidence that inevitably comes together nicely as Rick weaves the story together for us. But for those among us who remain a bit skeptical about this fantastic revelation, the discussion is not over. Because the YouTube episode with William Matson Law and Rick and myself is the follow-on to this introduction. And it will be out soon. And those tough questions I asked during this podcast, the ones you won't hear today because I edited them out, will be asked again. And you will hear them out loud on the discussion with Rick and William in that upcoming YouTube episode. There the questions can be posed to two of the most knowledgeable and capable on the planet when it comes to answering these questions. So, without further ado, let's listen to the rest of episode 212 of JFK, The Enduring Secret. If we had to pick one highlight, it would be the fact that we are now informing the world that there were two morgues that exist in Beth- physically existed in Bethesda uh, at that moment in time. And that's something that, that nobody knows unless, A, they saw the Zoom thing in Dallas that I did and heard S.T. Patrick's podcast I did. Uh, and most people aren't even aware that that's even existing. So for the most part, I'm assuming nobody knows that. Like you said, the thing we do best is the conversational aspect of the Q&A, not the formal presentation, read, reading information that might pe- people might find, minutia, whatever. If we were to go into that very short thing I read about in the summer of 1916, talking about the new wing being built, and then after that, we go right into the audio interview clip, of of Carney with Cunningham, where he, because this really came from him, he is telling, you know, the fact that, well, there were there was an old morgue and then we had the new morgue. And then after that audio clip, then we just present the simple question. Well, what does all this mean in the scheme of things yeah. that there were two morgues? Could they have been used? Could both of them been used that night or whatever? And then and then the discussion is off and running. How does the knowledge of the fact that there were, in fact, two morgues uh, at Bethesda, you know, fit into everything we think or we thought we knew up to this point? How do we know that there were two 
loading docks and and two different sh- shipping categories. You know, all these different things that we know in hand already. It's like the lawyer, don't ask a question in court you don't already have, know the answer to. What I think would be great is right after we hear the Osborne audio and then we pose the question, what does this mean? You know, the fact that there were two morgues uh, in essence of Bethesda on that night. How does this relate to the research of, of author David Lifton or even later on, you know, Douglas Horn, and then summarize their basic understanding of what they thought happened that night? Because uh, all of a sudden, at the end of the day, we're going to turn all that upside down. I presented you tonight with a whole buffet. And in essence, uh, what we're really going to do for this podcast is start the meal off with the dessert. And then uh, and then we just talk about the ramifications uh, of the fact that now all of a sudden we're finding out from Dr. Carney uh, in, in this hidden interview or old interview or whatever, that there are in fact two morgues, which may explain a lot of what we thought we knew. We've asked a famed author, uh, William Law, to discuss this with us in today's podcast episode. I think in order to keep the order of discussion pertaining to, to the events of that evening, that we still have the five bullet points that we begin with. First of all, we want to talk about, uh, you know, the arrival of the caskets, the two caskets, you know, and then, you know, the different loading docks and then, uh, you know, so forth and so on. So we have an order of event of that night. You know, uh, because the, the the evening starts that afternoon. Rebentesh is told by Groves, we're going to be receiving this casket. And, and so it starts early on. And then and then, of course, you got Dennis David and and all these other things going on up until eight o'clock when the autopsies begin. And at, at, at six twenty five, Rebentesh receives a casket at six forty five. Dennis David receives the same casket at his loading dock. And then, uh, and then just, you know, go on from there. And, and you could s- create the, that summary in about a minute. And then we could talk about all of the, what the meaning is of all of these things. Or the... Part of the answer to the, the mystery is the fact that most people know nothing about the Rebentesh story uh, of, of receiving uh, a casket earlier than Dennis David and at a different morgue. Everybody just thinks of Dennis David and the shipping casket because of Lifton. And because of Horn, they don't realize there's a whole other side to that. And that's the real, that's the real, wow, you know, that's the real bombshell. The body that comes in and received by Remitesh and his guys at six, at around 625, 630 in the evening. It really is, is the, really is the president's body. It, it, it is the president's body. And it goes to the old morgue. And it goes to, yeah, what is the old morgue, yeah. The important thing once Kennedy's body around 635 is brought into the old morgue is that that brings in two people that nobody could ever understand where they fit in, which yeah, is Knutson yeah. and Pitzer taking pictures of, of wounds that were seen in Parkin in Dallas. They they documented it for who? I don't know. I can't answer it. But they actually, you know, these photographs and materials were witnessed by other people, i.e., Dennis David and o- O'Donnell. And then after these photographs were taken, right in front of the x-ray technicians, 
Custer and Reed, who have finished all of their work. They're through. They're sitting there. And now they see Humes take out a saw and start, you know, sawing the top of pulling the scalp back and sawing the topic uh, of Kennedy's head. Nobody was ever able to understand how the wounds from Parkland changed to the formal autopsy after eight o'clock. Well, because Humes ahead of time was the one that saw the skull open and removed the brain. Let me backtrack again. I think one thing that we didn't insert in there is the fact that once Rebentesh and his guys bring the president's body in this gray shipping casket uh, into the old morgue around, you know, 635, which is, you know, uh, logged in, you know, or at least that information is given to Boysian. That addresses the whole issue of the Boysian report of the casket arriving at 635. Then the casket, which is now empty, is brought back around to the rear of the hospital, to the new morgue, where that's received by Dennis David, who up until this moment, everybody thought because of Lifton and whatever, that Dennis David was the one that received the body of Kennedy. But he didn't. He received an empty casket. What the, we don't know what those men who worked for Dennis David, whether they felt they were handling an empty casket or not, because not one of them has ever surfaced. We don't even know their names. We don't know what those men experienced, but we do know one thing. First of all, this took place after at 6.45 in the evening, and this casket was placed on the floor of the ante room and left there. And we do know that Paul Connor said that that same shipping casket did not come through the doors of the morgue until 8 o'clock at night. So you have a, a casket that's been sitting there since quarter of 7, and doesn't come in till eight o'clock. And plus the fact you're setting the body of the president of the United States on the floor of an ante room and walking away. The body that, and we should really not use the word uh, autopsy, we should actually call it a pre-examination. Okay. And, at, during, and during the pre-examination is when the brain, bullet evidence, whatever, wounds were altered or changed during the course of the removal of this evidence. The casket that Kennedy came in was already removed from the room, you know, once he's put on the table. Ten minutes later, it's brought to Dennis David. It had to be put back in the black hearse that originally delivered it, that then drove around to the rear of the, you know, where Building 8 was, brand new Building 8 wing, and that's Mm -hmm. where Dennis David's waiting for it with his guys. The only thing that makes sense, and again, we don't have witnesses to this, but the only thing that would make sense is that when they're finished with what they're doing with the body at the old morgue, they put it, they wrap up the head again, mm-hmm. you know, with towels and whatever wrapping over his nude body. And this is what Jenkins and O'Connor, everybody saw when the body was taken out when they received it. And it's put uh, in the body bag so that and with a sheet over it so that I would imagine they did that because uh, if it's wheeled from the old morgue through the hospital to the to the new morgue, you know, even the guy who's wheeling the thing, you know, won't have the opportunity to pull up the sheet and look at what the hell's underneath. You know what I mean? Assuming they didn't know. But but I think that's how I got from the old morgue to the new morgue. And then it's reunited with the shipping casket that Dennis David received. Well, it's the same shipping casket the Rebentesh received. And, yeah. uh, and and so it's that's when it's reunited with this casket. It's been sitting on the floor of the ante room now for an hour and 15 minutes, give or take. And then at that point, at 8 o'clock, 
that's when the casket, shipping casket with the body is brought into the official new morgue where O'Connor and all that stuff happens. Been around the complex for, even though they don't remember it being this long a time, supposedly the ambulance drove away, drove away from the front of the uh, hospitals, you know, at 7.05 or, you know, whatever. And and then they lost it and didn't find it till eight o'clock. So that's, that's almost... It's 50 minutes or so, give or take. But nevertheless, the official time of them coming upon the casket and bringing the bronze casket into the hospital was officially in their report at 8 o'clock. And they're doing so at that same loading dock that Rebentesh was dealing with. And they brought that bronze casket, the honor guard did, into the hospital to the old morgue. The bronze casket is separated from everything going on in Building 8. But but nobody knows what happened to the bronze casket during that interim time between when Jackie goes into the hospital and the ambulance drives away until 8 o'clock when they find it again. According to the Washington Post, yes, it was Galloway that drove the ambulance away. The bronze casket only comes into the hospital that night at 8 o'clock up the ramp to the old morgue. In the official accounts... They don't address a shipping casket arriving earlier, you know, uh, an hour earlier, in fact, with the body of the president. And they don't even acknowledge the existence of there being an honor guard there bringing a casket in. So, you know, that that's the extent of the lie the government said. We've got two things. We have the lie and we have the truth. Here's the lie. The lie is, is that once Jack and Bobby got out of the ambulance and the bronze casket supposedly in the back of this Green Navy ambulance that arrived, then after a few minutes, they figure out where they're going to bring it. And then, and it's just involving Cybert and O'Neill, the FBI guys and the Secret Service guys, Greer, who's supposedly driving this Green Navy ambulance in front of the hospital. And Greer, and they drive around the back and the four of them unload a bronze casket into the morgue uh, the official morgue, which is in Building 8, the new morgue, at 735. But what really happened, the truth is, is that the, the Navy ambulance that Jackie and Bobby get out of uh, is actually driven away by Galloway, Admiral Galloway, not Greer of the Secret Service, but Admiral Galloway from Bethesda, and then disappears. And all of a sudden at 8 o'clock, by miracle, it's all, all of a sudden found by the honor guard that have been driving around for over 45 minutes trying to catch up and, and find it. So um, that's the truth. In the meantime, President Kennedy is not brought into the morgue in the bronze casket that Simon O'Neill say that they were involved in bringing in. It doesn't come in until 8 o'clock, not 7.35 now, 8 o'clock, witnessed by Paul Connor in the shipping, gray shipping casket. So you have two different stories here, and they're completely contradicting one another. We don't know, Jeff. We know that Galway, and this is witnessed by a reporter for the Washington Post, we know Galway drove that ambulance away. In fact, away from the honor guard who was moving toward it to most likely bring the casket uh, up through the steps and front door of Bethesda, very much like the story Rebentesh told about the decoy. Remember, he was told 4.30 that afternoon by Groves uh, that a, a decoy ambulance is going to drive to the front of the hospital with an empty casket, and we are going to be receiving the body of the president 
it was found. No, there's no witness that's ever come forward to say they saw Galway drive it to that point of the hospital and then leave. It was just found finally by the honor guard. Uh, and, and when they come upon it, finally, at just a little before eight o'clock, it's just the Great Navy Ambulance, the bronze casket in the back of it, and one individual, General Godfrey McHugh. And that's it. No Galloway, nobody else. And you know what else is most uh, missing the most? There are absolutely no Secret Service agents. So okay. supposedly we're, at, we're asked to believe that the, the, the presence in this bronze casket, and yet there's no Secret Service agents and, guarding and it? If that happened, that could have been a quandary. But in fact, at this point in time, around eight o'clock at night, this is the beginning of a whole new chapter because you have a bronze casket brought in by the honor guard. That When the honor guard finally catches up with that parked ambulance and they remove the bronze casket and they struggle to bring it in uh, through the Rebentesh service area that we talked about, and they wheel it to the what is the old morgue, a body has then, you know, it's witnessed by Felder and Lipsy, a body is then removed from this bronze casket and put on the table at the, the old morgue. This is the body that I've been saying is not the president, but a body they have used that has different wounds, different head wounds on it. But I that, you know, you know what I mean? Well, you, you, you know that, you know, park the park on witnesses and, and even and even the people who saw the expanded back of the head wound, you know, like O'Connor, Jenkins, whatever. And they talk about, you know, th this blowout being in the back of the head. But but the body received after eight o'clock brought in by the honor guard that's at the old morgue has a blowout at the right top front of the head that goes into the face. And this is both. A, this is described both by Lip, uh, Lipsy, by David Osborne, and told to me by James Felder. So you know uh, they're looking at a body that's got tremendous, you know, damage going into the right side, top forehead, right forehead, and into his face. According to these witnesses, they probably weren't able to have any kind of sensible idea that this could not be the president. Well, they, they, would, they would not only know that the, the wounds are seen on this body were not the wounds that the, the, pre, the actual president of the United States received. But, uh, you know, all they had to do, I guess, is have a body uh, that looked relatively like like uh, the president. And then with this massive wound, I think just the shock of the whole thing, you know, never made them question that this could be somebody other than Kennedy. You know what I mean? Did you know that the president actually had uh, a lookalike decoy? And there's also one piece of the puzzle that we didn't discuss that you were kind of alluding to or asking questions about, which is once the ambulance leaves the front of the hospital and disappears for 45 minutes, what's going on during that period of time that all of a sudden they went from having an empty casket to then reappearing, uh, you know, at eight o'clock? found by the honor guard to have a body in the casket. <clears throat> now, again, this is speculation on my part, putting together pieces of a puzzle that we do know to be true and assembling it in a way to give us some kind of possible answer to, to that missing piece of time. Two things that, are, that come into play. Number one, you've got 
James Fox, the man who had taken these photographs that we've determined were not taken at Bethesda's autopsy. And I've determined it's not the body of President Kennedy. And these photographs by Fox, they were taken at a facility 100 yards behind the rear of Bethesda Naval Hospital, behind where Building 8 and Building 7 wings were built. And that facility was called NAMRI, Naval Medical Research Institute. How do I know? Because in 1992, when Dennis David is looking at these photographs that these other men, Jenkins, O'Connor, uh, who were at the autopsy of the president and worked in that morgue every day, are looking at these pictures and they're saying, we did not have a table that had a metal headrest. That floor tile did not exist in the room that we worked in. So they're talking about a whole different room, which was not the Bethesda Naval Autopsy Room. They didn't even know about the old morgue, but it doesn't matter about the old morgue because Dennis David looks at the pictures and says, that looks like the table at Namry. Now, until that, nobody even, that's one again, one witness I found that nobody's ever talked about the existence of a building called Namry. Now, Namry, they dealt with bio warfare, experimental uh, things, and they worked on animals, chimpanzees or, or large chimps, whatever. That metal headrest on that table in the Fox photographs is, is uh, a table in a room where they dealt at Namry with dissecting animals after their experimentation with them or whatever. Now, you have to ask yourself the question, all right, well, how is James Fox having photographs, which I believe he's a Secret Service photographer. I believe he not only developed them, he, he took them. So what's he doing in this other room? Well, before Fox is taking photographs that night, Secret Service had uh, Robert Bauck sends Fox and five other men to receive the body of a dead Secret Service agent, not Kennedy. And this is according to Fox. Uh, a couple of months before he passed away that he told this researcher, Mark Crouch. So my speculation is a body, I don't know where it came from, what plane, what airport, whatever. But nevertheless, he and other Secret Service agents are sent to receive a body that they're told is, is this dead Secret Service agent. I believe then they brought this body to Namry, where then he took it's put on this table and he's taking photographs of it or whatever, because there's no Y incision. Nothing's done, been done, you know, officially to autopsy this body he's photographing yet. And he's taken these pictures of this other body. And I'm speculating now, Jeff, that the reason why our Gray Navy ambulance disappeared is because it drove from the front of Bethesda Hospital all the way to the back of the complex to Namry. Ultimately took that body at Namry once they finished doing the photographs, put it into the bronze casket, drove it back around down to uh, where the honor guard finally finds it. Everything yeah. that night was extraordinary. Well, two things. The dead secret service agent that was given to the media and ran on TV and radio and even the next day in print um, was rescinded later on in the day without any explanation as to, first of all, why it was given to the media in the first place and then why all of a sudden they said it didn't happen. But I believe uh, the Dead Secret Service situation came into to play twice that day. The first time when it was given to the media at the time uh, of the Parkland uh, events going on, I feel that it was used as a cover because the only thing that makes sense to me 
is the only way that they could get Kennedy's body from Parkland to Air Force One was not in the bronze casket where then it's insanity in my mind. The bronze casket's put inside the plane and then while somebody's distracted or some, you know, the swearing in thing is going on, they take Kennedy's body out of the casket somehow or other. And don't I have no idea uh, they're able to get into the bottom part of the storage part of of the plane. To me, that's insanity. What I think happened is the fact that they did a little misdirection, sleight of hand. And then after they had witnesses, they had Parkland. So everybody thinks presence in the, in the bronze casket that's put in the white hearse and driven away. Meantime, he had already been taken out of the casket. And, and then at some point shortly after that, it's put at the very least in a body bag, could very well have been put into the shipping casket at that point, put into Aubrey Reich's ambulance, which Aubrey Reich and, and, and his partner then chase the white hearse, you know, follow that to, to Air Force One. And uh, I think that's, you know, when the body was put in the lower part of of, uh, of Air Force One. And, uh, and that, to me, makes more sense of how the body got out of there. But my thinking was this, Jeff, or they could have, A, told Reich, this is the body of a Secret Service agent that was shot. We have to keep this secret. You can't tell anybody. And he's under the impression he's just delivering, you know, this second body who's a dead Secret Service agent. You know, or they put out that story that if somebody in the media, a witness, whatever, sees this thing going on of bringing this body out into Reich's ambulance, then then it could always be stated to anybody asking questions. This was the body of a dead Secret Service agent. You know, now, again, I don't have a definitive answer for that, but it certainly makes more sense as to how the body got from Parkland into the bottom right hand storage area of Air Force One. That then uh, Mark Crouch found this witness. and I'm sure I told you this an airman who was in one of the hangars when the plane arrived, who saw uh, what he felt was a body removed from that right front part of the uh, of the plane and quickly brought to a helicopter that at very, you know, almost still on the tarmac, flew away, uh, you know. And so you got that aspect of the story anyway. Well, Lifton had said that somebody had seen or that we had witnessed or seen drops of blood on the floor in the galley area or whatever. But Lifton also came up with certain stories that just could not be, you know, it was Lifton-esque, if you may, you know, it just couldn't be corroborated by anybody else. But to just address briefly one question you asked a while ago, uh, you were trying to wonder if if that guy Liggett, who was mentioned the Minnow Kill Kennedy, could have been involved at all with this, you know, second body. Mm -hmm. Two things about that number one uh but there's a it was not part of the fox black and white autopsy photo quote unquote photos but the the, uh, one of the photos that was stolen from the hsca by groden was a color photograph showing the right side of kennedy and tom wilson the image computer image processing guy uh image processed that photograph And he already had software that he was able to put into his computer from a video uh, showing a man being his his face was reconstructed by somebody at a funeral home or whatever, gone through a fire. I don't know what the damage was, but anyway, shows the actual time frame process of the reconstruction of this man's face using wax. 
So Wilson's computer was able to to determine and pick up the fact, you know, in, in photograph, video, whatever, you know, whether this is wax, an artificial substance or actually, you know, human skin. And an image processing this color photograph of the right profile Kennedy, the face, the top of the, the into the, the top of the head, the right, the ear, all wax covered with wax. Now, the question that Wilson posed at that time, and he didn't know about any of this stuff I've come up with, you know, discussed with you recently, because, you know, this is this is 20, you know, 25 years ago. He's dealing with this is the fact that to him. It, it, it was an oddity only because the body had not received a what there's no evidence of a Y incision or anything yet. It hadn't even the body had not even been autopsied. And yet it's already got wax, you know, covering the face and, and the area and the right temple that supposedly Kenny was shot and all this stuff. So you've got that bit of business. And then when the casket is finally received in the East room and they open it up to decide whether or not they're going to have an open casket. Jackie uh, blurts out, and this is heard by James Felder standing right next to the casket. He looks so waxen. So, but then, you know, they bring in family friends, you know, to, to help make the decision whether they're going to keep the casket open or not. And one of the family friends, William Walton, he was a, uh, uh, an artist among other things. Uh, and he was the one that actually set up the whole East room with chandeliers and drapes and all kinds of other shit before the body even arrived, you know, for it to, you know, rest and repose there. And so Walton looks at the body and he's quoted in Death of a President by Manchester stating, it's a wax figure. It bears no resemblance to the president. Now, one could say, well, you know, this is what the people do afterward. The mortuary people, they use wax just to reassemble the wounds and so forth and so on. But, but, but there's, you get the indication from the Gaulers people who worked on Kennedy's body that uh, in fact, they just use cosmetics, makeup, not wax at all. Or they did use wax to apply over uh, uh, some kind of a, a small hole above the right ear, or, you know, in the, in the right top of the forehead. Gallers has done their thing. The body is put into the casket. Paul Connor is actually the one to put rosary beads in the hands of, in the hands of the president before the, the casket is closed. And then according to Gallers' after-action report, Roy Kellerman and his Secret Service agents take the casket and bring it in out to the loading dock area and put it in to the Gray Navy ambulance, to a Gray Navy ambulance. OK, so this is this is a defined, explained bit of business, if you may. This part of the hospital that I've been talking about all along, uh, Building 4, Rebentesh, the Honor Guard, you know, all leading from the old morgue. That's where all the limousines are lined up to take the, the Kennedy party to the White House. Whatever well, what, what, I'm, what I'm what I'm saying is, is the limousines that were waiting to take people from Bethesda to the White House were all lined up outside this this other area of the hospital where the old old morgue was located, not the very rear, the very brand new wing, Building Eight. Can I, ask, can I ask a question? It was three o'clock in the morning, so it's pretty dark. 
out, right? Three o'clock in the morning. Well, there's enough lights outside the building that you could see clearly. And not only that, Jeff, this is the one bit of photographic evidence that shows me that, in fact, that ramp that we're talking about with the railing uh, and at the top of the ramp, the door on the right that leads into the hospital that, you know, uh, you, Clark, and whatever said they, you know, they were dealing with, that's all in this photograph. And I sent that photograph to you, Clark, and he identified it as the part of, of Bethesda that he had, in fact, been dealing with that night. So we have actual photographic or film evidence of that part of the hospital with all this activity going on, but there has never surfaced one photograph of the back of building nine, the brand new building uh, with that wooden jetty that Dennis David described that, that the, you know, the, the new morgue with Kennedy's body is actually, you know, so, uh, uh, The reason why we have this contradiction, Jeff, is the fact that we have two distinctly different caskets at the end of the night and two distinctly different parties that are putting the you know, that are wheeling the casket out. You got the honor guard versus the secret service. You got the thousand pound casket the honor guards dealing with versus the 255 pound casket that Gawler's officially has paperwork that the Kennedy family ordered. So, you know, uh, it, it's very much like the conundrum that everybody's been dealing with all these years, just about the fact that, you know, they, they didn't know there were two morgues. Think of it these terms. Who knows what was going on with Bobby Kennedy, the Kennedy family, their closest aides and everything else. But if the Kennedy family was willing to take a bunch of photographs, there were fabrications and not even photographs of their of his brother. And this is in the hands of Robert Kennedy because he deeds these uh, deed a gift to the archives in 1966. If they're putting forth that, which does not even represent their, their, their brother, then is it a stretch to believe that, in fact, there, there could have been this hanky-panky? You know, we don't even have a chain of custody uh, for Kennedy's body at the end of the night out of the new morgue because we're just told in the Gaulers report that Secret Service men were the ones that put it into the back of an ambulance. We know for a fact that night there were a number, or at least two, to say the least, two Navy ambulances in play uh, for various reasons as decoys. So, um, you know, we beyond that, we don't have a chain of custody, Jeff, of the Green Ambu Ambulance with the casket that carries Kennedy leaving Bethesda and ending up at the White House. We don't have any witnesses or chain of custody pertaining to that. We only have the chain of custody pertaining to the other casket with the other body and the honor guard. So sure. that's, that's, that's what we're faced with here. Uh, you know, obviously, you know, there's no easy answer. And that, that gets us into another realm of, speculation but you just used the word did you say outrageous mm -hmm. Out, how outrageous is it that the official autopsy photographs that are in the archives that we're told are president kennedy are not at all president kennedy they're not present it's another body and yet these very materials were not given to the archives by the secret service or the fbi or whatever they were given to the archives by Robert Kennedy and the Kennedy family.
They knew that this was not JFK. So what's going if they're putting forth that kind of lie, is it really a stretch to start to ask questions about all this other stuff that That, that's the that's the Lamar Waldron, uh, you know, story dealing with the army contingency plan based on just what was going on with the height of tension at, with Cuba at that point and, and all the shenanigans the CIA was doing, you know, uh, toward Castro. And so they had already had that in place. Uh, and, and then uh, there are well, certain explain, people. Who, yeah. Explain explain a little bit more of what that was well, well by having this contingency plan in place to be able to deal with perhaps uh, an ambassador in a Latin American country that dies all of a sudden, whether it was because uh, somebody trying to rob him or whether or not he was killed because of a political action or uh, or whatever, they had a contingency plan where they would be able to commandeer that body immediately and bring it to uh, a, an area where they could control the autopsy, the statement of how the man died and everything else. So so people wouldn't jump to the conclusions that, in fact, Fidel Castro was responsible for killing one of our ambassadors or diplomats and that that would be used to, to kick off some kind of, uh, you know, uh, war, whatever it may be. And so uh, the thoughts were that that very contingency plan that involved, you know, concerns about Castro at that time was implemented when Kennedy was died and and put into to action, uh, which explains a lot of what went on and bringing the how the body got to Bethesda, what went on at Bethesda that night once the body is there. But moreover, the man that was uh, JFK's liaison to this contingency group that oversaw the plan was uh, a man named John Nolan, who was RFK's one, his closest aide. And John Nolan was uh, told Lamar Waldron, he was there at Bethesda that night. He was on the phone constantly with Bobby Kennedy uh, discussing the autopsy and other things that were going on. So with Nolan's presence there, that led a lot of people, including Waldron, to believe that uh, it was part and parcel with this contingency uh, uh, group. Well, I don't I don't think it's a I don't think it's a stretch to th think perhaps that Bobby Kennedy had great concerns about the death of his brother being used as a catalyst for the very military that they had been trying to hold at bay all this time. You know, and, you know, the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And like you said, that that uh, Operation Northwoods, the the insanity of that particular plan that would that months earlier had been put forth, that, that the Joint Chiefs or, or military or intelligence people would use the death of the president uh, to light the fuse as a catalyst to go in, take out Castro and take control of Cuba. Because ultimately, the final thing we're told is that no, there was no foreign or domestic conspiracy in the death of the president. It was a lone nut. Well, the only way that you were able to create that scenario and try to sell it is control the body, control the wounds and the narrative and be able to put forth something that supports that a quote unquote lone nut assassin firing from behind in the sixth floor window of that building uh, was the one that killed the president. Well, this is 
This is unprecedented. Actually making a sandwich before the podcast is done. Oh, my God. I know. Well, I could only have done it with your help. This is what I call a hands-free podcast. I didn't have to hold on to the mic. All I had to do was uh, listen to your story. I, mean, I asked you a few questions, a few, I mean, actually a few critical questions, right? I mean, there's a lot of people who would listen just like I would and shake their head a little bit until they hear, you know, all those pieces fall into place. And it's bizarre. It really is. It's it, as bizarre as it sounds in its part and parcel. When you take a step back, it uh, comes together as a, as a plausible answer. And it, it ties together a lot of things that don't make a lot of sense when there's actually still the presence of a lot of credible testimony from credible people. You know, you look at these areas and the autopsy is one of those areas in this whole story of JFK that you say, how can two people and this repeats itself in so many ways. I mean, the Parkland doctors versus what uh, was said in uh, at Bethesda, that's sort of the classic example of that, but more so within these things that happened that night after all of the more, uh, the witnesses on the ground, so to speak, were released and they began to talk and go on the record from, you know, uh, really early on for some for, for a handful of them but the really after 1978 when much of the the secrecy requirements ran out and little by little it all trickled out and when you start to take all those pieces and put them together as you have uh it it's it's extraordinary and that's the story that it tells so uh well, I mean, well we, I, we've got a we've got a three-part thing here we've got the fact that the hsca interviews which give us a lot of information uh, about how they conducted what ultimately was just another more elaborate cover-up than the Warren Commission did. But that stuff was all supposed to be sealed for 75 years. If we didn't have the Stone movie and the furor around that, we never would have had an ARB to release this information, even though they never assembled it in a way to put forth, you know, some kind of an intelligent, uh, uh, you know, summary or meaning for all but they just put it in the archives and left it to the average uh researcher to try to go find it and make make sense of it but to the day they died neither dennis david or donald rebentesh ever realized that they were at two distinctly different morgues at different times receiving uh what i believe was the same shipping casket that had just been moved from one area and then ultimately uh, you know, to another, but it wasn't, but even then, even when Dennis was alive and getting Jim Jenkins involved, whatever, we knew we had two loading docks and two different casket deliveries. We were able to establish that, but we couldn't make any more sense of it because nobody could even figure out where this other loading dock area was that Remondesh was referring to. And it wasn't until finding that interview, the key to unlocking this whole Pandora's box is finding that interview with, with Dr. Carney where he states, you know, without even knowing, you know, the importance of it, that there was not only a, used to be an old morgue, but then there was a brand new morgue that had just opened up uh, at that time, a few months, months before the assassination in that new wing, Building 8. So now, having been given these two major puzzle pieces of two morgues, now we could take all these other smaller puzzle pieces that we didn't know what where to put them, 
And now we could start attaching those smaller pieces around these two big ones. You know what I mean? And so thank God for Karnai and thank God for Rebentesh, you know, because without those two, we'd still have our head in the sand and then in the dark, not knowing what the hell happened. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's extraordinary. And it, it goes back to the idea that, you know, piece by piece of the puzzle has come together to form something that is uh, pretty extraordinary. When I hear that, it also gives me a little bit of hope that, you know, as everything is sunsetting on these witnesses, that there's still maybe documentation. That's why it's worth fighting for the last bit of documentation to be unleashed. A lot of people say there's no startling revelations in it. Well, maybe not. But what has come to pass more often than not is rather than finding a piece of evidence that's sort of the Rosetta Stone, what people find is a small piece of evidence usually overlooked by most parties, but someone who happens to be in the right juxtaposition of research finds this little nugget that connects something two two pieces of this and makes it very clear uh, how things flow together and uh, completes perhaps a theory, turns a theory into a set of real facts that support uh, what likely happened. And uh, that's, and, and, and of course, anything that's being withheld documentation wise at this point, one presumes has to have more uh, overt uh, evidentiary than the stuff that was released in the earliest parts of, uh, you know, this process and, and, and up to this time. So I really think that there's, there's a lot of hope. And I think that's why we should continue to push to try to get everything as much as we can. And look, I'm sure there was plenty of stuff that got destroyed uh, that was incredibly damning and really told the entire story more definitively. That's gone uh, for posterity. But there may be these small little bits of evidence, you know, like a, a, kind of like in a crime scene, you know, maybe somebody's picked up the gun and swept off with it right at the moment of the crime, but, you know, they left a hair right smack dab on the table. And uh, now with, now with DNA testing, we can figure it out. And that's the kind of thing, you know, I'm not sure it's a perfect analogy, but that is the kind of thing. That's the kind of excavating that the research community, I think, is now down to. And uh, especially as eyewitnesses, Sunset, you know, you knew a lot of the people in this story. I don't know that we've ever really talked about that, but you knew, uh, you interviewed Dennis David, you've interviewed uh, Jeff Jenkins, uh, Reventesh, I think you've, you've obviously you've talked to. Uh, you've talked to Gerald Custer, um, you know, uh, who, who else at Bethesda have you had direct conversations with? Uh, Floyd Reby. Floyd Reby. The, you know, the, the photographer assistant to John Stringer. Sure. Um, well, two men from the honor guard, Felder and, and Clark. Um, and like you said, the five men, Dennis David, and then there's Rebentesh. So, so the, the guys receiving caskets, you get Rebentesh and David. You've got the, the photographer, Reby. Uh, you've got the x-ray guy, Custer, 
who was with Red Reed, but not, in my opinion, X-raying the body of Kennedy, even though they believe that, that well, well, actually, I should take that back. They, they X-rayed Kennedy's body, but not at the official autopsy after 8 o'clock. And then you got Jenkins and O'Connor that were at the after eight o'clock official autopsy. So, uh, you know, and then the honor guard guys. So, uh, you know, uh, but again, until just recently, we had no idea there are two distinct episodes going on, or she can use the word productions going on simultaneously, pretty much at the same time, you know. And, and when I look back on, on, you know, what really changed the tide in all of this, it wasn't governmental investigations. It was these witnesses like Knudsen, like Rebentesh, like uh, Dennis David, um, uh, and, and a number of others that after the fact, years later, just because of whatever, some weird coincidence, went public with their story. And this is after the last formal governmental investigation. You know, Knudsen tells his story uh, or tells a little bit about his taking the photograph, the autopsy photographs of the president to a photography magazine in 1975. You know, Dennis David goes public to a local magazine, uh, newspaper man around that same time, but not giving his, his name wasn't mentioned at that point. You know, Robin Tesh in 81, after the best evidence book comes out and he has a real issue with some of uh, Lifton's hypothesis, he ends up going public and telling his local newsman his story. So none of this stuff was because of an actual governmental investigation where they were brought in as witnesses on the road. You know what I mean? Luckily, they, they surfaced at some point on their own uh, in their own means, you know, but thank God for that. Or we didn't we wouldn't know any of this stuff. Yeah, no doubt about it. And, you know, I'm in the middle of doing a series of episodes on Joseph Miltier and the right wing conspiracy connection that seemingly was right in the middle of his involvement. And, and that's a fascinating set of episodes that at least I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated by the topic as I uh, prepare them. And uh, your comment a little bit earlier, which is so sad, actually, it's a, it was a commentary about the 50s and the 60s and the, the segregated society that we lived in and the level of uh, civil rights matters that we had to deal with at that moment. You know, the idea that the African-American, the two black men that you refer to could be in the room and that they were not dismissed because culturally there was just the presumption that they didn't count so they wouldn't talk. I mean, that really that really is an incredible social commentary. I know it, it might have gotten missed by the listeners because of all the larger things uh, that we were talking about that were directly related to the case. But that in and of itself is just a, you know, a telling, a chilling critique of society at that moment. And I've got a lot that's going into these next four or five episodes that just mirrors that. And I think you really have to understand, you really have to put how the world was in the United States in that time frame. You have to put it in context. And, you know, it's not to say that all people felt that way, that no doubt there was an element of the fringe, just as there is today. There's a lot of interesting parallels in all of that. But 
there's an element of the fringe that was, and I think the difference is that the, some of the general bias that created that story we just talked about with the two black men in the room, uh, much of that I think has subsided, but, um, but there still are many, many parallels to that same period of time. And particularly uh, parts, parts of the country where there are greater concentrations of the fringe element. Well, you know, you know, Jeff, uh, another aspect of this is the fact that in his interview with the HSCA, Richard Lipsy states that he's sitting in the uh, in the gallery with Lieutenant Sam Bird watching, you know, this autopsy in front of him. But what he does not say is the fact that sitting there right with them is an African-American, James Felder, one of the honor guard uh, men. And, and, and Felder's name is not mentioned once by Lipsy uh, being in the room. Perhaps that's why all these years the research community really didn't even, you know, zone in on the fact that here's one more witness that could tell us something about what was going on at that moment. And so, uh, and the other interesting thing is both the, uh, the Cybert and O'Neill FBI report, and then ultimately years in, in the Warren Commission, and then years later in the HSCA, they have a list of everybody that was in the autopsy room at any time during that evening in any kind of official capacity. And yet, James Felder's name doesn't appear anywhere. It's like they had no idea he even existed. But the most interesting thing, there's one more name that's left off that list. And he was actually interviewed by the HSCA and described the wounds that he saw on the president's head and things that went on that night, although he his job was really to set security uh, at all the different entrances and exits and that kind of thing, was Dr. Robert Carney. Now, how in God's name can you officially interview this man? This is the HSCA now. And then not even list him as one of the men that they had, you know, in the morgue that night? Is this just a real stupid error on the part of this investigative body? Or did they leave him off purposefully? You know, uh, you have to ask this question because not only the HSCA forget about him, but Stephen O'Neill forgot about him and the Warren Commission forgot about him. What is it about Robert Carney that, that, that nobody seems to want to, you know, address? And yet he is the only man that I've seen anywhere to make mention of the fact there were two morgues. He said to the HSCA when setting security that he had photographers that were running, going from the old morgue to the new morgue. And they were, you know, had the Marines stopping them. So, you know, whatever. So that's the first time he talks about two morgues. And then, of course, the uh, the interview by Kathy Cunningham that we're, we've talked about. That's it. He's the only one that ever mentioned there were two morgues. Well, I Not mean, just, just like somebody, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, I didn't mean to interrupt, but just like someone who is being cross-examined on the stand, <laughs> If you're the cross examiner and you have no idea that that even existed, you would never ask the question. So all these people were never asked the question and they never had to never had to lie about it, nor did they have to disclose it. And, well, 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 part of it, Jeff, is the fact that a lot of these people, especially people who just came uh, to Bethesda at the point that they were there, 
as corpsmen, like Paul Connor and Jim Jenkins, they arrived once the new morgue was already, you know, open and, and ready for business. They had no idea that there was another part of the hospital that had the place that used to be the old morgue. Most of these witnesses had no, Dennis David, all these people that are basically the witnesses that Lifton found, that Livingstone interviewed, that Doug Horn talks about, all of these people had no idea that in 1963, there was actually uh, a place in the uh, hospital that used to be the old morgue. Not, not one person other than Robert Carney has ever even stated the existence of, of these two morgues. So, you know, this this was kept from all most of these people that came forth as witnesses as, as well as, as the rest of us. So uh, they did a pretty good job at this cover up for all intents and purposes. Yeah, they really did. And obviously they had to call an audible or two. Right. Uh, perhaps because Jackie wanted to stay with the body or for whatever reasons, uh, however, however it worked or. Uh, or if they were in, in originally intentionally attempting to keep it in Dallas and that didn't happen, who knows, but <clears throat> there's a lot of, uh, there's still a lot of speculation around a lot of the, a lot of the uh, points that we haven't talked about that relate to that. But anyway, you know what, it is getting late and it's, uh, this has been great. And uh, you know, I'm going to cut this part out because we're kind of done with the taping, but, uh, I kind of egged you on there, and guess what I got? Well, you 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 got the kind of banter that you enjoy the most. So now the question remains: Does this go into the vault? Is our real secret hidden? You know, tape? No, it's the episode. It's the episode. I'm going to edit this, and uh, I don't need to edit too much of what you said because you were fabulous. I think this is the episode. Please do get yourself over and subscribe to our YouTube channel. It's free. And please do listen to the upcoming episode with famed JFK researcher and author William Matson Law, myself, and Rick Russo as we discuss the mysteries of Bethesda. Thank you for listening to episode 212 of JFK, The Enduring Secret. 